Good morning. You know, we sing so many of the, the old hymns. In fact, we opened this morning singing one of those that is hundreds and hundreds of years old, written by St. Francis of Assisi and translated for us into English. But uh, In Christ Alone is one of those hymns that, of the uh, 20th and 21st century that I think is going to be sung, if the Lord tarries, for years and years to come. So rich with theological truth, so encouraging, uh, so as worshipful as it speaks to God and to his sovereignty, to the gift of Christ for our need of a Savior and the gracious provision that he has given to us. And so that's why we're here this morning. That's why we rejoice together. That's why we desire to study his word so that we might demonstrate our love for him who first loved us through drawing near to him through the study of his word and by that obedience to him. I wanted to, again, just give a brief update. Uh, we've been praying for some churches in uh, Ukraine, and um, just I've been able to receive kind of weekly updates. They've been gone around uh, to a number of us. And, uh, you know, they, they're, a lot of things are continuing, as you would expect. Um, a few of the sister churches they have, they've lost touch with. Uh, as the bombings have continued, as communication has been lost, they haven't heard word of whether they're okay or not, so there's certainly continued prayers there. Uh, one of the church, churches there in um, just outside of Kiev has uh, sustained significant bombing. They're used to hearing from them every day and they haven't heard from them in two or three days, so be lifting them up. Temperatures are cold. We're reminded of that this morning. It's even colder there as uh, they're without power, without heat, uh, many of them sheltering in, in bomb shelters. Um, but there's a lot of things to actually give the Lord praise for. The ministry and the gospel that is going forth. Several of these churches have been able to, um, they, they saw ahead of time and stockpiled a bunch of food, not for their own purposes, but to distribute it. And so they have as many times as 300, 400 people that they're ministering to in the community. Uh, seeing them every day as they encourage them, as they pray for them, as they share the gospel with them. Um, there's other stories. Uh, there was a, some churches that knew of their need over in Poland, drove across the Ukrainian border to deliver it. The Lord protected them, and they were able to deliver another large stockpile of food. So as we continue to, to think about them, I don't want it, our brothers and sisters to be far from your mind. It's, we should regularly be praying for those that we are united together through the Spirit who are across the world, but the current events certainly bring to mind our brothers and sisters in Kiev. So we will lift them up again in prayer this morning. Father, we do thank you for just the gathering together of your church. What a precious time it is. The, we encourage one another. We, as we sing your praise, we remind ourselves of the great riches of mercy and grace and love that have been bestowed upon us. And we want to rightly start there in our worship this morning. Father, pray that you would direct our hearts, our minds to the study of your word this morning. Father, not for some intellectual pursuit, but to know the mind of Christ, to draw near to him, to deepen our fellowship. That as we draw near, you would open our eyes to to the beautiful riches of the Godhead, of the Father himself. Father, that our nearness would create within us just a desire to flee everything that would bring dishonor to your name. 
Father, we know that this life, there are struggles, there are difficulties. We come with our own, whether it's sickness and health, whether it's just the daily grind of life, whether it's work, whether it's parenting, whether it's relationships. Father, there is so much that that is affected by sin. In fact, every aspect of this life is affected by sin, and it makes it a hard world. Father, that's been compounded even further for our brothers and sisters in Kiev and Ukraine. Father, we pray for them this morning as they've already gathered together, as they've already been singing your word, gathered around, hearing the teaching from Scripture. Father, we pray for their safety, but mostly we pray that the hope of the gospel would shine forth from them, that they would be bright lights in the midst of these dark times. Thank you for the encouraging words we have. We, Father, we rejoice in that for the provision that you've given to them. Pray that more would come and that uh, you would allow them to look back at this time, as hard as it is, as painful as it is, as one in which they give you praise and they give you thanks as they see your sustaining hand. That as we read this morning from Psalm 82, that you would not tarry in punishing evildoers. And they would see your faithfulness in that. Father, we thank you for your spirit who dwells within each of us, whom you have given to the church as a blessing to lead us and guide us into truth. Father, we pray that he would work in our hearts to open our minds to the truth of your word this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. If you haven't already, you may open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13 as we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew. This really ties in very well with what we just discussed regarding what is happening in the world, but we are really easily and quickly discouraged, aren't we? I'm reminded of that in my own life. I'm by no means immune to the discouragement, the difficulties that can come, and find myself having to fight the tendencies to just quickly become discouraged. And perhaps nowhere are Christians more easily, more quickly discouraged than in observing increases in wickedness. Rightfully so, we, we should abhor it, but it's that increasing of wickedness that leads us to want to cry out like David does, How long, O Lord? Why are you doing this? Why haven't you punished the evildoer? And what really takes the wind out of our sails is when persons who call themselves a Christian either fall into sin and won't repent or demonstrate themselves to be so consumed by sin that there's a question of whether they were even a Christian to begin with. It's especially true when it's found amongst leadership. This world is full of what we might call lookalikes, those who call themselves Christians but are not who through their lives, their words, both lead persons into sin and create discouragement, bringing into question the truth of the gospel as a whole. So how are we to deal with this reality? How are we to deal with such persons? Or should we start a witch hunt to root out every false Christian, every false teacher, every false professor of the faith? Perhaps... Maybe we should create a more rigorous litmus test for entrance into just the local church. Or maybe here's an idea. We could isolate ourselves as a community. Withdrawal from the world around us. 
We could resort to a form of monasticism and remove ourselves entirely from the world so as to not be confused or polluted by the world. How are we to respond? Well, the parable of the wheat and tares address these and other concerns. And this morning, we are going to observe as the disciples draw near, asking Jesus for understanding into this parable so that we might likewise learn how to live in a world full of tares. Read along with me if you would. I'm going to read the parable that begins in verse 24 of chapter 13, and it goes through verse 30, and then I'm going to skip ahead to the explanation that Jesus gives to the disciples in verse 36. Beginning in verse 24, we read, Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But, while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Down to verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares in the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. And the field is the world, and for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the son of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. While speaking this parable and those that preceded it, Jesus, as you may recall, was in a boat just offshore of what was most likely a horseshoe-shaped cove, teaching to the crowds gathered on the banks that afternoon. If it's the particular cove that actually bears the name, the Cove of the Sower, these banks, after a, a brief shoreline, immediately go up and create an amphitheater-type setting where it would have been easy to, have hear, to hear someone teaching just a few feet offshore as the voice would have projected and echoed off of the rocks and the hills. As we've noted the past few weeks, this day marked a significant shift in the ministry of Jesus as he begins to speak to the crowds primarily with these parables. In fact, that day, Matthew tells us, according to verse 34, that when addressing the crowds from the boat, Jesus spoke to them in nothing but parables. 
When we get to verse 36, we encounter an abrupt change of scenery. We transition quickly from the seashore back to the house where Jesus' mother and brothers had shown up earlier that day while he was teaching. This is likely, again, Peter's home, which Jesus had used as a base of operation for much of his Galilean ministry. But even more important than the change of scenery, we notice a change of audience. Where Jesus had been addressing the crowds, Jesus now is addressing his disciples. And these disciples of Jesus certainly included the twelve, but they also extended, as we've seen elsewhere, with that generic term of disciples, to many others who followed him. At times we see as many as seventy. And once they came to the house, the first thing on their mind was to come to Jesus, at least according to the narrative, and ask him to explain the parable of the tares of the field. It's interesting to consider that having heard all of these different parables, and Jesus will explain a couple of others to them, but having heard these parables that as Jesus finished interacting with the crowds, as he left the crowds and the took the boat, went back to shore, that this parable is what was ruminating, running through the minds of the disciples, so much so that when they get to the house, the first thing Matthew records them doing is saying, tell us what this means. Just that alone, by the way, is an important application point for us this morning, at least something to note, an implication we might say. Because we're reminded again how understanding and insight for these disciples is found from following Jesus. From drawing near to him. And it's in that drawing near to Jesus, that listening to him, that meaning is then given. It's like a foggy morning where as you walk or you drive along, those objects that in the distance are obscured or unclear, they begin to come into focus as you draw near, as you draw close. So too, our spiritual insight and our understanding becomes clearer as we draw nearer to Christ. And we draw near through obedience, through prayer, through the study of His Word. And this is an important observation. Understanding and insight in the Christian life comes through effort and diligence. It doesn't come passively. Particularly effort and diligence in drawing near to Christ. As D.A. Carson notes regarding the disciples, they are not distinguished from the crowds by their instant and intuitive understanding. That isn't here what distinguishes them from the crowds, but rather by their persistence in seeking explanations. Jesus' disciples come to him and ask. They seek him. Therefore, a full explanation is given. I could leave you with this. Final thought with regard to this implication is do not be content to merely listen or passively read Scripture. Ask questions. Seek the answers. Ask how Scripture applies to your life. We are promised that the Spirit will guide us and answer these prayers. The requirement on our part is that we not quench the Spirit through disobedience. Now, the shift in audience that we've observed is also carries with it a shift in application where the purpose of addressing the parables to the crowds was to call them to repentance toward a recognition that the kingdom of God has drawn near the purpose of the parables 
to the disciples is to provide insight into the kingdom of God and how it is unfolding, particularly the need for patience and not losing hope. Back up a little bit further and think about chapter 10, chapter 11, and the things that we saw there where these disciples, particularly the 12, but the disciples as a whole, were told, you're about to endure trials and tribulations. You can almost see them calling time out. I thought the kingdom of God was at hand. The kingdom of God is supposed to be blessing. It's supposed to be ruling. It's supposed to be reigning. It's supposed to be a riddance of all that is evil in the world. Where then does this suffering fit, Jesus? We began to see this last week as we looked at Matthew's use of Psalm 78. Psalm 78 recounts God's history in fulfilling the covenant promises leading up to the first David. And in so doing, the psalmist Asaph, called a prophet here by Matthew, provides us with insight into how God's fulfillment of his covenant promises, particularly those pertaining to the kingdom of God, will unfold leading up to the second David. Just as the promises and the history of Israel leading up to the first David were filled with many unexpected twists and turns, so too the promises of the kingdom leading to the second David will include unexpected events. The kingdom will come, but it will not come as you expected it. So Jesus is having to correct their expectations. And one unexpected path in the kingdom program of God is brought into focus this morning in this parable. Namely, this time between the first and the second advent of Christ, where this suffering begins to fit in where these difficulties begin to fit in, where the trials, the tears begin to fit in. And importantly, it's got a worldwide emphasis. You see, the camera is about to zoom out as the focus pulls off of Israel for a time and begins to include the entire world in the kingdom program of God. It has always been God's plan to redeem from every tribe, tongue, and nation. But so much of the history of God's work of redemption has been focused on Israel, and we're now about to see it pan back out for a time to focus on the world at large. And we see this worldwide focus in Jesus' explanation in verse 38 that we've already read. And though it's not until Jesus' ascension that the disciples fully grasp that the kingdom of God's reign is yet future, that the full incoming of the kingdom must still wait, These parables and Jesus' explanation serve to reassure the disciples that the kingdom of God will come in its fullness, despite the opposition they are and will be seeing. Verses 36 through 34, or through 44, excuse me, can be divided into two sections. These are very logical. You can see this. The first where Jesus provides definition around this parable. That's done in verses 36 through 39. And and then there's the second half where Jesus explains the parable, applies the parable, if you will, in verses 40 through 43. Looking at this first section, one commentator notes, after returning to the house, Jesus provides the disciples with a rapid-fire seven-item lexicon of the parable's reference that orient them to the purpose of God. This lexicon, if you want to call it that, includes, first, an introduction to the protagonist of the parable, that is, Jesus. He is the sower. 
We meet the antagonist, the great enemy of Jesus, of his saints, Satan, the devil, the one who is sowing the bad seed, the tares. And to that end, we note that there are two different types of seeds sown. The good seed, which are faithful sons of the kingdom. You might call them believers or saints. And we see bad seed, which are the sons of the evil one. As we're going to note, it's more than just a generic description of unbelievers. There's some specificity around that. We're told there will be harvesters. These are the angels of God, presumably the servants in the parable who earlier desired to prematurely pull out the weeds because of their zealousness. Jesus then describes the harvest by focusing on the gathering of the bad seed at the end of the age. Further described as stumbling blocks and those who practice lawlessness. These sons of the evil one are cast into fiery torment where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That gnashing of teeth is that, that grinding, that gritting of teeth. Often done because of pain or out of anger. In this case, perhaps it's both. And lastly, we note we are given an explanation of the soil or the field, which is the world. It's important to note with regard to the field or world that nowhere do we find the world used as a reference for the church. It doesn't mean the church isn't in the world, but the world is not the church. I may mention of that now to avoid confusion later, and we'll return to this in a few minutes, in a few minutes but this helps guide us in our interpretation and understanding of this passage because while it applies to believers and disciples of Jesus Christ, it is not narrowly speaking a description of the church, though it certainly includes believers in the world. This parable, by the way, is an allegory or is allegorical. Now that doesn't mean, and bear with me, I don't mean to confuse you, it doesn't mean it should be allegorized. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, an allegory or figures of speech, such as allegory, metaphor, poetry, those are all parts of speech God has given us to communicate and to understand Him. Allegory and metaphor exist to help explain and teach us about God, about things about His nature that we do not normally experience in our day-to-day life that can't be as easily communicated through didactic teaching. It gives us pictures to help draw us in and explain it, to help us understand it better. However, there are rules of interpretation that guard against allegorizing the allegory. That is, laying our own allegorical interpretation, our own creative interpretations on top of the text, finding meaning where no explanation is given. In other words, it's one thing for Jesus to say, the sower is the son of man, but another thing entirely for me to try and find meaning in the casting of the seed. Or to some other hidden meaning behind sowing or some other unexplained point of comparison. You see, when someone makes an allegory, they make specific points of comparison that they are drawing out, and these are what we interpret and we understand. But we need to be careful not to create our own new allegories. You see, an allegory can be interpreted in a literal, grammatical, historical way, understanding what it is, just like poetry, just like metaphor. As one commentator notes, no elements except those explained by Jesus should be given an allegorical meaning. Having provided definition of the key players and allegorical components of this parable, 
And Jesus now transitions into the explanation of this story. What do these points of comparisons, these allegorical reference, what do they mean? What application do they have to us? How does it change how I think, how I behave in the world around me? Verse 40 directs our attention to the end of the age. This is the focus of this parable. It's not that it only talks about the end of the age, but it certainly describes the end of the age. That is the emphasis. It's at this time that the, parable, the tares will be dealt with wholesale and the kingdom of God will be ushered in. Prior to that time, there will be no wholesale removal of the tares. The tares in this parable, as we discussed last week, in the parable itself, they are a reference to that fake wheat, that darnel, which in its early stages of growth is virtually indistinguishable from real wheat. It's not until the heads of grain or the fruit begin to appear that you can tell them apart. Darnell is poisonous. In small doses, it affects vision and balance. In large doses, it can kill. It was used frequently enough in feuds that the Roman law forbade planting of Darnell in an enemy's field. And these characteristics of this seed are fitting descriptions of the false teachers or the dangerous lookalikes that this parable refers to in the world. But did you notice the shift in emphasis between Jesus' telling of the parable to the crowds and his later interpretation? Not a change of meaning, but a shift in emphasis. In the telling of the parable, the emphasis seems to be upon the owner telling the servants to wait, not to separate the tares and the wheat until the time of the harvest. It references the time of the harvest, but in the telling of the parable, the emphasis seems to be much more on this time and what is going on now and the patience of the master during this time. There's a sense of, to the crowds, turn from your sin before the judgment comes. But now, as the scene shifts, the emphasis for Jesus' disciples is on the end. You see, that's what they want to know, is when do we get out of the suffering? When do we get away from the tears? It's a message of assurance. It's meant to steady them, to remind them, as one commentator said, to take the long view and set their hope on the day that will most certainly come. It has echoes of what Paul notes about enduring until the end in Romans 8, verses 18 through 19. Where he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Does that sound familiar? The revealing is a description of that separation of the wheat and tares when only the sons of God are put on display. So, as we see this parable directed, or the explanation directed to the disciples, we see the promise that sin and wickedness will be dealt with. The kingdom will come, the king will rule in righteousness, so renew your hope and be patient. But there's more that we learn. Note too, the field or the world provides us an important look at the global focus of this period. 
The good seed is planted throughout the entire world. And we note in that description of the world, the inclusion of Gentiles from around the world into the kingdom program of God. Now, throughout history, some have taken this field to refer specifically to the church. Not to just a reference to the church in the world, but to the church, that that is the world. With the tares and the wheat side by side. So what do you think? Is this a reference to the church? And if it is, what is meant by the church or believers here? The arguments for seeing this as the church are not without some merit. Note, for example, that the tares look like the wheat. And when we think about the world at large, the world at large doesn't necessarily try to look like a believer. It's most often, most frequently within the church that you find this similar, similarly looking person, this look-alike. But to answer this fully, it's helpful to first remind ourselves of the difference between what we call and what theologians call the visible and the invisible church. The visible church refers to all those who call themselves Christians, many of whom attend a local gathering, go to Bible studies, perform works of service. The invisible church, however, refers to those who truly are disciples and believers of Jesus Christ, whom the Spirit has sealed to the day of revelation. They are part of the visible church, but they are the truly saved of the visible church. They are the good seed. If we were to build this out as a syllogism, we might say this, all good seed is part of the visible church, but not all the visible church is the good seed. By the way, this aligns with what Jesus has already said in the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. And what are probably some of the most sobering words in all of Scripture, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter, that is the one who bears fruit. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So how does this relate to the field? Well, the similarities have, as we noted, caused many to see in this a reference to the church. I would counter, however, by noting that, again, nowhere do we find the term world used as a description for the church. We find the church in the world. And so there is certainly overlap, but the focus here of this text is on the world. Specifically, it's on worldwide judgment, not judgment within the church. There's a worldwide focus to the judgment that's going on. It's certainly true that there are persons in the world and in the church who look like Christians and are planted as false teachers, wolves in shepherd's clothing, and stumbling blocks. But the parable describes global judgment, not a specific judgment within the church. The tares look like wheat, but you can know them by their fruits. Notice in the parable that it was when the wheat heads bore fruit that they could be distinguished from the tares. This is an important point for us because it's whether in the world or whether in the visible church, the true believer can be known by their fruit. 
Jesus' exhortation for delay and weeding out the tares is also and should not be taken as a prohibition against church discipline. Those who take this strictly as a view of the church also see within this a prohibition and patience and avoiding purifying the church or discipline within the church. However, because the focus is on the world, we should not take it as such. The prohibition of the waiting is for the angels. It's for the angels who want to remove the lookalikes. They want to remove the stumbling blocks, these tears out of the world. What we see Jesus doing is forestalling his holy angels from exacting vengeance. Lest true believers or those whom the Lord will call get caught up in their zeal. Turn with me to Matthew 18. Just a couple pages over in your Bible. And note what Jesus says regarding those who cause someone to stumble. And again, notice the worldwide focus here. Verse 6, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that the stumbling blocks will come. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the internal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out, throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. We note there as well the worldwide emphasis as Jesus talks about stumbling blocks will come in this world and in this life. They'll come from inside and outside of the church. Again, this is not excluding the church in its description, but it is not exclusively the church in its description. So we see this is not a prohibition against dealing with sin in the church. In fact, God elsewhere, in fact, later in Matthew 18, he directs it specifically to if your brother sins, narrows that focus from worldwide to the church, the visible church, in the presumably invisible church there. He provides a pattern for patiently dealing with sin in the church. But if you look at church discipline and the descriptions for how you deal with sin that is in the church specifically, it is much more akin to surgery or the surgical precision and removal, not this wholesale reaping that goes on here in Matthew 13. That is reserved for the final harvest, for the end of the age. What we are reminded of here is that Satan is actively planting persons who look like Christians in this world. He is planting poisonous counterfeits, stumbling blocks. And we should be aware of this. And certainly we should seek to refute error, but more importantly, to live out lives in such a way that our fruit exposes them as tares and false wheat. Do you notice that's what highlighted the difference in the parable? It was when they bore fruit or when they bore their heads, the head of grain, that is when the servants noticed the difference. Jesus' exhortation here includes the exhortation for the good seed to bear fruit. That's the correct way to deal with tares in this world. Again, not talking about the church specifically, but tares in the world. It's, it's not through force, 
but rather by being salt and light, as Jesus notes in Matthew 6. That's how we deal with the false counterfeits in this world. Yes, we can respond with the truth, but it's also to live out the truth. Note, too, that the zeal and the desires of the angels are not wrong. It's just that the timing's not right. The angels must, like the persevering saint, wait patiently for the end of the age. There's another important implication that we can't miss out of these verses, or shouldn't miss. And that's this, that there is, despite the patience of God, despite all that is going on, there is no escaping the rule of the kingdom of God. No person who has ever lived or who will ever live can escape the rule of the kingdom of God. Whether into everlasting joy or everlasting fire, no person escapes. And the reality should energize our desire to share the gospel. To tell our family, our friends, our neighbors, and our co-workers of the danger that awaits them if they will not repent. But we need to be doing this not out of the zeal of the angels that will be realized at the end, but with the tears of Christ who wept over unbelief. Yes, we can long for the end of sin and wickedness, but let us not forget, even for a moment, that it comes with a great price for those who have not repented of their sins. This is part of the reason why the Lord has so patiently forestalled the reaping of the tares, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. I'd be remiss if I didn't say that if you are here this morning, repent of your sins. Call out to Christ. Turn to Him while it's still today, while the angels are still being forestalled, while the reaping has not yet started. He's promised He will not turn any away. There is no sin so great, no life so stained, that the blood of Jesus cannot cleanse you and mark you as a citizen of the kingdom of the Father. And that's the message that we have to offer. That's the hope that this world so desperately needs. Jesus closes the explanation with a final note in verse 43 that is more teaching than it is parable explanation. It provides an additional explanatory note regarding the kingdom of God that has no direct tie to the parable. You see that, right? It's implicit, but it's not explicit. There's no direct tie to the parable. It makes logical sense, but it's not an explanation of the parable. We read in verse 43, Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Jesus here provides balance to the judgment of God with the language of a father who delights in blessing his children. And what of this future statement? Their brightness will shine. Well, one, it highlights that the brightness, the witness, and the testimony of the good seed is slightly obscured in this life and in this age by the tares. Certainly it can be obscured by our own sinfulness, but more than that, here the emphasis is on the obscuring that takes place by the world, by these lookalikes, those that call themselves Christians but who do not bear good fruit. They obscure and dim the light of the true church. It's like a mirror that hasn't been cleaned in a long time. It doesn't reflect as brilliantly, as clearly, as brightly. 
This is why we're called to let our light shine, to make the distinction clearer through our fruit. Jesus uses this image, this image of light in the Sermon on the Mount. When we read, and you can flip back there, Matthew 5, verse 14. There he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We are certainly to busy ourselves with fighting against the dimming effect caused by sin, caused by these lookalikes, particularly those false converts who continue in sin in this age. And we do this through what Jesus described of letting your light shine before men through your good works, through obedience to the Father. However, the full glory and the brightness of the saints of God, of the citizens of the kingdom, will be seen at the end when the tares are removed. When that separation happens, they're no longer there to obscure the brightness of the saints. There's also a really neat contrast here to the stumbling blocks in this language. Maybe more than you realize at first, unless you've been doing a study through Daniel like you've been doing. Turn to Daniel 12. Chapter 3, or verse 3. Notice what Daniel says. Those who have insight will shine brightly, like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And look at here, those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. You notice that beautiful contrast here? Unlike the stumbling blocks that obscure the light, we're called to lead many to righteousness, which enhances our light. There's a beautiful picture here in contrast. True believers and saints who act as salt and light lead others into the kingdom, and they will shine like the stars of heaven. All the brighter when the stumbling blocks and the tears are finally removed at the end of the age. And what is it? What is this brightness, this shining that's being described here? It's the reflecting of the glory of God. It's being near to Him, being in His presence. And it's as if the the more diligent we are in serving Him and loving Him and drawing near to Him, the more brilliantly we reflect His light. Again, to borrow the picture of a mirror or some reflecting surface, the closer it gets to the light, the brighter it is able to display it. And one of the chief responsibilities, the chief purposes for which He has left us in the world, the good seed in the world, is to share the gospel. Jesus concludes with the repeated refrain, he who has ears, let him hear. This is a call to discipleship, to drawing near, to ask, to listen, and to obey. This parable teaches us that it is right to recognize that there will be in the world many lookalikes, many false professors, 
And the only way to distinguish them will be by their fruit. Sometimes it'll be readily apparent. Sometimes it'll take a very long time. There's sometimes you won't recognize it in this life. These lookalikes will exist within and without the walls of the church. One clear implication from the seed being planted in the world, the good seed, is that believers must not become recluses and retreat from the world. Instead, we should seek to lead others into the kingdom of God while living in the world. And we can't do that by withdrawing from the world. Another important reminder and implication is that we need to recognize that we are in an age of cosmic conflict. The devil is a roaring lion, as Peter describes him, looking for someone to devour. Far too few Christians, especially in the Western world, seem to have an awareness of this fact. Or if they do, they're not acting like it. I tease my children sometimes and I'll, I'll say, how are you doing? When they're kind of walking around with a frown and they say, I'm fine. I say, well, you need to tell your face about it. May not be the nicest way, but I do it with a smile. But as Christians, there's far too few of us who are acting like we're in a cosmic conflict. We don't understand, we don't recognize, we don't act like we recognize that Satan is out prowling about. We're passive. We wait. We're not serious about spiritual disciplines. We're not serious about drawing near to Christ. We're not serious about knowing Him, praying. We go about each day as if we can control the outcome, not that the Lord ordains our steps. Martin Lloyd-Jones notes concerning this cosmic conflict, the devil is mixing his people in among true Christians. We should be alert to this fact. We should be on our guard not to be taken in by those who pretend to be Christians but are not, and we should not be surprised that the devil's people show up in strange places or eventually show their true colors by abandoning Christianity entirely. Paul notes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 14 through 15 regarding this same idea, no wonder he says, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. John likewise notes in 1 John 2.19, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out, so that it would be shown that they are not of us. We also need to acknowledge that we cannot always distinguish between the wheat and the tares in this age. That shouldn't discourage us because we've already been promised that there is a day that is coming when the distinction will be made. The harvest will happen. The wheat will be gathered into God's barn. The tares will be burned. And the people of God will shine like the brightness of heaven reflecting the glory of God. Until that day comes, our exhortation is to follow what Paul says as he notes to the Philippians in Philippians 2. And we'll close with this. Where he says in Philippians 2, verse 14, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. 
holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the explanation to the parable of the wheat and the tares. Father, thank you for the long view, the long-term perspective you provide that gives us encouragement and hope, hope in the fulfillment of the promises of the kingdom of God and understanding that patience is required, but all will be made right in the end, that you are not slow as some count slowness, that you are patient, forbearing, gracious, and merciful, wanting there to be as few tares as possible in the end. Lord, we ask that you would help us to more brilliantly display the light of your glory. Help us to be aware of this cosmic conflict going around us, that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against the spiritual forces of wickedness that are waging war every day, that do not sleep. And so, Father, let us be children of the day. Let us be aware and awake and sober. Help us to be discerning. Father, as part of that, help us to just clothe ourselves in a graciousness and a gentleness. Though we know these tears exist, and though there will be times for rebuking and responding to clear false teaching and sin, Father, help us to help us just to demonstrate the gentleness and the humility and the sorrow that we see displayed by you as you looked upon Israel, as you looked upon the lost and wept over them. Never let our hearts be so hardened, even against the tares of the field, that we stop proclaiming the gospel, that we take for granted what you have done for us, that we lose sight of your great mercy for us. Father, cultivate within us a greater love for you, that we would bear more fruit. In your name, amen.